programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal, date, and millet breads. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Teresa Small, author of the book How to Love an Addict, joins me on the phone to talk about her book and journey with a meth-addicted son. She lives next door in Idaho, where she writes and works as chief financial officer for an agricultural company. I'm a tribal member with the Shoshone-Bannock tribes in Fort Hall, Idaho. I grew up um, and never really have moved out of southeastern Idaho. Um, lived here all my life. have two sons, um, 27 and 25, and I have two stepdaughters who are also 27 and 25. And we have three grandchildren. Actually, four as of December 31st. I um, have written as long as I can remember. I have a pretty large portfolio of poetry, um, articles, essays, some short stories, uh, some of which are copyrighted and published on the Internet, um, Totem Tales, which is a kind of lengthy child's book, and uh, it's kind of related to environmental health for the earth. Um, this particular book was inspired by pain, I think. <laughs> My um, youngest son got involved with drugs right around the age of 13. He's 25 years old now, and um, we went through quite a lot of trauma as he went through his teen years and his early 20s. And the things that I learned about addiction and learned about myself and learned about the effects of addiction on the family, um, I just felt like they needed to be shared because I knew there was a lot of help, there was a lot of written material, a lot of things out there for addicts and their recovery, but there's not that much support out there for the family of addicts and the people who relate to and love the addict themselves because truly they they suffer right along with the addiction. and. Um, Rather than writing another tragic story about my son and the pain that I experienced and the actual events that, you know, led up to today, I wanted to write a book that was more of a how-to manual that people could reference and say, well, this is how I feel. What do I do about it? Or this is the situation that we're in, the relationship that we have. How do I change it? And so I, I cut the book was actually quite a bit lengthier in the beginning, and I cut back to a smaller version that was a more condensed, handy manual, I guess. Yeah, and your title is really, it really struck me and uh, is interesting because it's called How to Love an Addict, which is normally what you don't hear in the mainstream media or in the media at all about addiction. It's usually the reverse. It's tough love, right? Yeah, and there's a little of that necessary. <laughs> Can you talk about the reaction to the book uh, within your community and family and readers? I've had so much support from friends and family and the community in general. Um, I'm also a volunteer leader in this area for the Idaho Mess Project, and they've been very supportive as well. And um, it's been received interestingly, because I've actually had people that I don't know very well come to me 
and share some of their personal stories and some of the pain in their life that they just didn't really want to be honest about. Um, so it's interesting how it opens people up because you just really can't begin the healing process or make a change in the relationship until you tell the truth. And I try and really expand on that point in the book. And how did you first discover or learn that your son was using meth? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I was in denial for a very long time about the meth. I knew there were things like marijuana and, you know, all the other drugs involved. But it took me... I wish I could remember the actual pinnacle point. We did take him to the emergency room at one point, and there was a toxicology test involved. He did test positive um, for methamphetamine. And at one point, he just plainly admitted to me that he was using meth. A lot of the symptoms of, I'm not sure how I want to put this, their personality changes so drastically that you don't recognize the person physically, mentally, emotionally, um, and I'm his mother, so I've raised this child, you know, from birth, I know him, and he became a person that I did not recognize in any manner, and when I began to question him, um, he was fairly honest about it, and I don't mean to make light of it like it was a discussion, because it didn't take place like that, there were medical issues involved, um, and I, and I do point out in the book that at one point he ended up in the psych ward at our local hospital for about a week with schizophrenia, uh, drug-induced schizophrenia, which is fairly common with meth. And a lot of his past history and his, um, the depth of his use at, at that time came from that visit. We learned a lot about him at that time. The time he ended up in the hospital, he was probably right around 20 years of age. He did manage to get his GED, go through the Job Corps program, and get a vocational certificate in carpentry um, in the midst of his drug use, which I had to be proud of him for, ironically, because he had dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. And oh. he was the third child of the four. Um, they were raised together. And the other three children were, you know, seemingly normal. They got good grades. They were socially active. Um, you know, we had the regular struggles of childhood, but nothing that even set the stage for this kind of an addiction and problems that come with it. So it was new to us. Um, it was tragic to think that I had a high school dropout, and we just took it from there and rode the ride. It was a wild ride. And what were some of the signs and symptoms of it that you, um, you yourself experienced and your, your family or other children? There's a lot of contention with methamphetamine use, um, <clears throat> personality change, and anger. Um, anger over little things, um, specifically uh, punching holes in the walls, um, just a lack of interest in anything, very odd hours, um, unusual behavior like clenching of teeth or snapping fingers, um, picking at their hair, picking at their skin. Uh, meth tends to make people sweat profusely. 
there are a lot of physical symptoms that you can watch for. Um, my son in particular didn't suffer the meth mouth that can be sometimes common with meth addicts. Um, he does have some cracked teeth and dental work now, but he didn't actually have the gum disease and, you know, that type of physical symptom. But um, you can tell when someone's that angry and um, the windows are the eyes to the soul. There ceases to be anything in there. There's no depth. It, they're dark. They're dilated. And there just is no emotion. They're void. They're void of emotion. And, and understand, um, currently, my son's 25 years old. So this was a 12-year process for us. And I would like to say right up front, he is doing really well now. He has almost two years in January clean and sober. Um, some of it not by choice because he was subject to prison time at the end of his run. <laughs> and so um, a lengthy treatment program and just a lot of resources from the state, medical professionals have helped him get to where he is. And that's not that common with meth addicts. So I feel blessed for that. One um, particular circumstance that kind of shows the extremity of the situation. My son had come home one afternoon and we live in a rural area with a small acreage and he just immediately pulled his car behind our shop and parked in the back. Um, he and a friend came into the house as though nothing was going on and asked if I could give them a ride to this friend's home. So I said, sure, you know, let me finish what I'm doing here in the kitchen and I'll give you a ride. So we jumped in my car and backed out of the driveway. And no sooner did I get out of my driveway, I was immediately surrounded by about eight vehicles. Um, there were local city police, county sheriffs, and U.S. Marshals in unmarked vehicles. Um, they came up to me with loaded guns, asked me to exit the car. Uh, two of them took me by either arm. And they took the boys out of the car. I shouldn't say boys, they're young men. <laughs> Put them in the prone position in the street right in front of our home. Um, there was no warrant for my son at the time, but his friend had a felony warrant. And they took both of the boys in and escorted me back to my front porch where my husband was waiting. And I don't know if you've ever had a loaded gun pointed at you, but I um, have grown up in what seems to be a typical American suburbia ch childhood situation. Um, that type of thing is what I see on TV. It's not the reality of my life. And that day, because of my son's addiction, it became the reality of my life. I had no idea what these people were doing. I had no idea why they were there. It was terrifying. And that was the day the point and the time that I knew that I had to change the relationship that I had with my son. In order to keep myself safe, or myself safe and, you know, the other members of my family that frequent my home. What were some of the changes that you made in your relationship with your son at that point? One of the primary changes that I made was to change the way that I communicated with him. I had, to that point tried to convince him, tried to talk to him as a mother would to a son, you know, about the right and wrong and these kinds of normal type issues. And it was then that I began to realize that addicts 
they process and they live in two states of mind. One of them is under the influence and one of them is seeking the influence. So they're either using or they're obsessing. And when a person's not in their right mind, it's really difficult to try and convince them that they need to be well or try and convince them that, that they're ruining your life and theirs. And I realized that was so simple and yet so deep because I was literally trying to speak to someone and deal with someone who was not in their right mind. This person had changed into someone that I did not know. Criminal behavior, physical and emotional, you know, symptoms just oozing out of him at every point. And I knew that that just had to uh, become someone that I would treat without the emotional contact of a mother and a son. I had to put my toe line in the sand. And so at that point, did you start to treat it like a disease? And I absolutely started to treat it like a disease for him and for myself because I started at that point to see the enablement that I had provided to him. I had provided him a home and a safe place and, you know, all of the comforts of home. And I knew at that point that he was using that as an umbrella. Right. And so then there was some tough love that you had Absolutely. to enact. And um, did you kick him out at that um, There was really no kicking out at that point because he would live with friends, go from friends to friends. And he would just come in at odd hours, you know, in and out. We did uh, take the key away from him, um, explain to him that this was my life. I chose not to live my life as a criminal. I chose not to put my life in danger and that he was not to bring anyone to my house and not to come to my house unless he was clean and sober. And after that period of time, I did not see him for quite a long time. Um, there was a that year, I believe, at Christmas, on Christmas Day, he called, did tell me Merry Christmas, but that he couldn't come home. He didn't have any clean clothes, um, and he was embarrassed. And I think that may have been one of his low points. Um, meth addicts tend to crash when they haven't used for a couple of days. They have peaks and valleys. <laughs> that was definitely one of his valleys. But there was no more money. There was no more um, invitation as our home being open to him under those conditions, a variety of things like that, that you just, you know, put yourself in a safe place. How has your son received the book? He was very excited about it as I was writing it. When I finished it, he was incarcerated, um, and I mailed him a copy, and I got a letter back from him that was supportive but a bit melancholy. He had been working on his recovery and dealing with some issues, you know, through that period of time. And I'm not sure he understood the depth of the pain that it had caused me and our family because they don't consider you. When they're full-blown addiction, it's not about you. And after about three or four months, he had actually... Uh, written me another letter and told me that he had passed the book on to some of his counselors and that his counselors had read it and were applying, you know, some of the things, talking back to him, having them speaking back to them, kind of using it, you know, in a ping pong game there um, as part of his recovery. And that made me very happy. And now he is just very supportive, but he's healthy. Um, when he was arrested, I believe it was in 
December or January 2009, right around there. He weighed 120 pounds, and he's six foot four, wow. and he now weighs 185 pounds. Wow. Yeah. The cover of your book is is quite beautiful. Can you talk about the cover, who did the cover, and what it means? This cover was drawn by a woman who was under the influence of meth. She spent several hours with ink, um, you know, making each individual little dot and drawing this picture that's apparently a monster in her mind. And as soon as she was done drawing, she grabbed a lighter, grabbed the picture, and torched it. And her intention was just to burn it after she had spent hours in this concentrated state. Um, the person that was with her grabbed the picture out of her hand, put the fire out, and my son ended up with it and brought it home. And I just thought that the uh, the detail and the eccentricity that came with it was just incredible. And I I kept it for a very long time before I was even done with the book, and I just I just felt compelled to use it for the cover because it shows the insanity that can come with uh, not just meth addiction, with every addiction. Um, meth is just such an extremely uh, addictive substance, and the chemical properties of it just make it horrendous. But all addiction creates that insanity in perfectly normal people. Did you ever think or expect that you would become such an expert on addiction? No. <laughs> and I thank God every day that writing was my hobby because that's how I deal with things. Um, and those who are writers understand that. Even people who don't care to write, you know, as a hobby or as a profession, keeping a journal can be healthy. And when you have that um, that vision to look at, to go back and get some historical data, and to maybe re replay your emotions as they were in that moment, it really does cause personal growth. And it can really show you the difference between then and now and how you were able to cope with it then versus how you cope with it now. Um, so for me, writing about it wasn't an option. But because of the subject matter, I felt like it needed to be shared. And and you, you talked about how it weaves its way into all of our communities. In, uh, yeah, absolutely. Being a volunteer leader for the Idaho Meth Project, I went above and beyond my learning just with my son um, by volunteering for them. I've learned that meth used to be uh, referred to as hillbilly heroin and primarily was manufactured in um, trailer parks in rural communities, that type of thing, storage sheds. A lot of those mini labs have just been abolished, and we now have what they call super labs in Mexico. And this um, product is transported across the border into the United States in mass quantities. Uh, meth is also easily made now in plastic, um, like one liter 7-Up soda pop bottles. And the, I don't know how you make it, but the chemicals that go into it, they put in the bottle, they shake it, and it makes meth. Um, so uh, that's a problem with truck drivers and um, mobile-type inner-city labs. Very easy to make, very affordable, and very accessible. 
That was Teresa Small. For more information about the book, go online at howtoloveanaddict.com. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. And if there's one message that anyone gets out of this book, it is that in order to love an addict, you must love yourself first. And you need to apply the steps, put the principles into action, and put yourself first in that situation, and then change the type of relationship that you have with the addict. That's the quickest way to get them to correct their addiction and want to help themselves. The best way to make a change in the world is to make a change in yourself. Last week on Car Talk, we demonstrated our usual sensitivity to callers with serious car problems. Saw white smoke, but I didn't really know how to diagnose what was going on. You can just you can hang up right now. <laughs> Did you still have the keys? Of course I still have the keys. Throw them away. <laughs> right. Throw them down the nearest sewer. Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for Car Talk. Tune in tomorrow morning, Saturdays at 10 o'clock. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. I am Susie Montgomery. Worms are persistent creatures in our lives. Stories of them abound throughout human history. They represent health and decay, fear and fortune, death and life. They are the main character of one of the most famous literary works by Edgar Allan Poe, The Conquering Worm. Within the lonesome latter years, an angel throng, bewinged bedight, in veils and drowned in tears. Sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God Nematodes on high are non segmented worms, and they are the most numerous multicellular organisms on Earth. Just a handful of soil will contain thousands of these microscopic worms. Many are parasites of insects, plants, and animals, including humans. The vast majority of them are poorly understood biologically. Early farmers used seaweed as a natural pesticide to protect plants and livestock against parasitic nematodes. The reason seaweed was an effective pesticide, however, was unclear. But more recently, studies have shown the chemical in seaweed called betaine prevents the worm from growing. But how betaine functions has eluded scientists. Today on the program, we present University of Utah scientist Dr. Ode Silvana Piden, and I'm a researcher, postdoctoral fellow. I work under Professor Eric Jorgensen in the biology department. She has spent the past seven years trying to answer the question, why is seaweed an effective pesticide? On November 10, 2013, the culmination of her work was published online in the scientific journal Nature Neuroscience. Dr. Peden used a technique called genetic screens in a non-parasitic worm and identified two proteins that modulate how betaine kills the worm. When one of these two proteins is mutated, the worm becomes paralyzed and sometimes dies because betaine opens the second protein that then floods the worm's neurons and muscles. This is why it's a case of too much of a good thing. Excessive levels of betaine is toxic to the worm. No matter what you do, 
you know, you just have to remember that sometimes God sends a warmth. particularly in children who suffer tummy aches when infested. The World Health Organization estimates 2.9 billion people are infected with nematodes. They also have a significant financial impact on agriculture worldwide and exacerbate the global food shortage. Parasitic nematodes are not just a problem for Africans. Right? It is a big parasitic nematode causes. There's like a major economic burden all over the world. Right. So mostly southern states have to go through because people lose livestock and then they lose their plants. Like I said, it's not just people and animals. You also have plants, tomatoes and corn plants that just have attacked by parasitic nematodes. So people are trying to figure out a way also to improve the yield on their crop. And so when you have worm killing all your plants all the time, as a farmer, it is frustrating. So you want to make sure that you have better drugs to be able to control these parasitic nematodes. Currently, available methods for controlling parasitic nematode infections are mainly based on chemical treatments and thelmanitics. However, the use of drugs has not been entirely effective and poses the risk of residue problems in meat, milk, and environment. And then another major problem with parasitic nematode is that there's a big problem with drug resistance. Right. Those are irreversible. Once resistance happens, they're just going to keep multiplying. The worm multiplies a lot. So once resistance happens in one gene, this thing multiplies. The worm that we work with, one worm can give you 300 progenies. Wow. So Is there a drug that's working right now? So the drug that they're using, the, the last set, major group of drugs that they used was, they called uh, Ivermectin. And the, that drug came out in the 1980s. So until the new Novartis class of drugs, which happened, they, they released in 2009, there was really nothing uh, else. So, and then there was starting to be issues with Ivermectin resistance, and all there are many drugs in the market. But the issue is that they're resistant to this drug, and then you want to find new drugs so that you can control those that are now resistant. Pharmaceuticals started making drugs to combat parasitic nematode infections in the 1960s and 70s. So until before that time, you just used plants, basically, to control infestation. People used tobacco, and we now know how tobacco functions. I mean, if tobacco is very toxic, it may even made the animal sick. But we know now how tobacco works, because it's nicotine in the... Uh, in, in the tobacco that paralyzes the worm because it binds to the receptor that is found in the worm muscle and the worm becomes paralyzed. I see. So, and then people use wormwood, right? Also very toxic because of chemical in wormwood that, you know, it does the same thing. It just goes and binds to a receptor. A receptor here, you have to remember, is just the lock and key kind of deal. A receptor is like a lock that any molecule or drug will bind to and open it. But then there's also been a, a, a long standing for cartel that said that seaweed are also able to kill parasitic nematode. 
Can you tell a little bit of a story about why this worm has sort of permeated history? I mean, I think that parasitic nematode, nematode were easy to be known as, as parasite because you can see them with our own eyes. Bacteria, ancient men couldn't see. You can see them without a microscope. But a worm, when you're infected with them and then you, if you're a person, you go to the bathroom, you're going to see a worm in your, in, in your stool. Or if you're an animal and you're a farmer, you're going to see worm in there too. So it, it was really easy to, to recognize them as being a problem or causing a problem for man and his crop and, 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 and best friend, you know, his animals. And I like to tell the story that I read in the Bible, which is uh, found in the book of Jonah. The end of that, that book actually tells us that God sends a worm to infect Jonah's beloved plant and kill it. So we go up to the time of the Assyrian in the Bible, and here they're telling you that they were already aware that nematode can infect plants and kill them. Otherwise, they would not have used that analogy in, in the Bible. And that brings up the point that parasitic nematodes don't just infect people or animals. They also infect plants. And then we know that besides the, 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 the health burden that they cause to African people or even southern United States or in Asia, and, 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 but you also have an economic burden because farmers lose a lot. The yield of, of the crop is decreased because of the heavy infestation by parasitic nematode. Mm -hmm. And some of the plants that are, that are heavily affected are things like corn and tomatoes. And, um, I have a question for you then. Um, so you ended up in neurobiology and you ended up in the University of Utah, but you come from Gabon. Yes. Was there any particular personal reason that led you to study this particular worm, or was it more happenstance because it was a way to understand the brain? Not all worms are parasitic, right? They're good, there's good worms. They, they have, you have like the good, the bad, and the ugly in, in, in a parasitic <laughs> nematode, uh, in a nematode species. And so the, the worm that I ended up here at uh, the University of Utah to use genetics to understand how the brain functions, how we generate behavior through neurons communicating with each other. And so I did not start out to say, I'm going to study parasitic nematode, even though growing up, it was also, we all had our own humiliating moment having to face, you know, being infected. But it was a complete accident. That's how science happened. You never know where you're going until you get there. So. Life is funny. It often unwittingly doles out what we need. I've known Dr. Peden, Ode, as a friend for half a decade. And her ambitions have always been to be a great scientist, to make a huge impact, to push the realms of neuroscience and help us understand the human brain. She's studied long and hard. She's done postdoctorate. She's moved all over the world. She's sacrificed a lot for her career. And the irony and the beauty lays in that O's discovery, her recent discovery, takes a twist. The impact of her research lies less in the understanding of the neural connectivity of the brain and more about something that threatened her and continues to threaten the children of her village in Gabon, Africa. So I think the worm that I had, we all had, when we go in the, during the summer and then you go to the village, I mean, we eat fruits and stuff, you know, pick them up. You don't even think about washing them or what, whatnot. But so somehow you get infected. 
right? But my grandmother always had drugs, so it's not like you were not, you know, completely like paralyzed and then like no, couldn't function. My aunt, who recounted her story again after I discovered the receptor, uh, tell me that when she was about five or so, she basically had her first encounter with a paralyzed worm stuck in her butt as she was trying to go to the bathroom. To her, oh that was death. So basically, she stood up from you know the bathroom and then with her underwear still on her knee just start screaming and calling out to her grandmother oh. to say I am dying this is death this is death and everybody thought oh my god she's been beaten by a snake you know you live in the jungle you think it is a green mamba or black mamba or even you know worse a gabun viper it's like she leave you what's going on what 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 it's just like no, I have a worm stuck in my butt. <laughs> so, so something like that is just like, okay, that's what I say. That's what I mean wow. by humiliating, you know, story where, I mean, we laughed about it. Nobody got severely, you know, it's like having a flu. You have it and then you get over it and then you move on. Well, thank you for that. So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, it isn't really funny, is it? It's a really major problem, but everything has a humorous side, Sorry, perhaps. Yeah. And when you're going through it, you don't see it as a major, as a major issue. I mean, you have a fever, you have this and that, and of course the med medicine was always there. But not everybody is that lucky. That that's kind of the major issue over African countries and over places. Well, let's get back to then how your particular discovery has potential to help this whole situation. Can you talk a little bit about? what your discovery, just go in detail about the science behind this discovery and then let's move into how this could potentially be a breakthrough for curing some of the things that you've been faced with even in your life. So they've always been before there were any pharmaceutical company making drugs. People have always relied on plants and then for most of the plant we know how they function like in, in Tobacco, which was very bad, it used to be given to cows and stuff, livestock, and it was. Now we know that nicotine, which is found in tobacco, whether you smoke it or give it to cows, uh, will go and block the receptor that sit on the the muscle of the worm, and the worm become paralyzed, and then it's easy to expel. And the same thing is true with wormwood which also has a very toxic chemical and it's also able to paralyze the worm and then expel them. But the, the major problem with these two plants is that nicotine also has receptor in human. So when you give it to animal, everybody gets sick. The worm gets sick, the animal gets sick. So you couldn't really use them. These are not really good drug to use. But they did make analog of this drug called levamosol that people use a very long time, but levamosol now is no longer being used as a parasitic drug because it's just way too toxic for the same reason. It binds to some of the same receptors that are found in people and the toxicity level is just too high. So you want to be able to find a chemical that only targets warm proteins and that this is a key. It has to be the best drug will be one that targets the warm protein. And then also the issue is also 
a protein that will be withstand resistance issue because a major problem in the field is that there's too much drug resistance and once the resistance appear it's not going back so you had to have new drugs and as you know it is not easy to make these drugs it's very hard to stay it's ahead of the game yeah so where our work come was another common plan that is in the f uh, folklore that was known to be good against parasitic uh, nematode mostly plant was seaweed. The seaweed folklore proves true. Seaweed extract placed around plants, such as tomato and corn plants, prevents infestation. As we stated earlier, the chemical in the extraction responsible for killing parasitic nematodes is betaine. And so, and this is where my work comes in because while I'm trying to understand how a neuron communicate with each other and, and the muscle to uh, modulate uh, locomotion in, in, in this worm that is not parasitic, I identified a transporter, a molecule that is supposed to, whose job is to make sure that there's not too much betaine outside the cell. And that molecule, that, uh, that gene, is called SNF3. You have to understand, I call them transporter because that they, what their job is. They're supposed to just clean up the street, make sure that there's not too much of this chemical. And the transporter have always been a very good target for drugs because for people who take antidepressants, you actually, and you take, if you have depression and you take a drug known as SSRI, um, you actually, what you're doing is every time you take that pill, is going to go on and block the uh, transporter that's supposed to clean up serotonin outside of the cell in your brain. And so when you clean up, you don't have enough, and then your mood just goes down. So when you block it, then there's too much serotonin outside. Then serotonin goes and open, you know, those locks that in, in the neuron that's supposed to make you feel good. Then your mood lifts up. And that's how it works. That's how it works. And this is similar to, and to this your discovery. Is, this is the same gene that I found, but this gene does not transport serotonin. It's actually transporting this molecule called betaine. So this gives us a way to say, oh, now we have a model where you have too much betaine outside the cell. Does it have any effect? And then we found out that, yes, indeed, it does have an effect in, in the worm, that it makes the worm to become paralyzed and very hypercontracted, sometimes resulting to death. And now you start asking the question, how does it do it? Because that has always been the issue. People who could never figure out, can never find what the lock was. Everybody had the key, but nobody could find the lock. So we use genetics mutations in the worm again, and then we look for, to look for that lock, and we found it. O discovered the lock that turned out to be a protein called ACR23. Now she could explain how seaweed could lead to worm paralysis and death. Fortuitously for Dr. Peden, one of the two proteins she's identified has already been used by the international pharmaceutical company Novartis to make a new drug called Zolvix to use against the worm. It's being sold now in Australia, but the problem is after a few years, the worm becomes resistant to the drug. The worms have the ability to change their genome such as they can keep living in the presence of the drug. So the more ways or targets we have to kill them, the better. 
She adds we have to make drugs that kill multiple facets of the worm biology. The genes she's identified will provide new targets for better drugs. This work is a crucial weapon in the war against parasitic nematodes. In, in my paper, we actually show how the Novartis drug works. Actually, the Novartis drug need to have the endogenous lock, so the lock that is found in the womb, in order to work. So you, we need both the chemical that come that men, men made, and then you need the one that was natural together in order to open, to really open this, this lock and then kill the wall. So the new drug from Novartis has only one target, ACR23. She's found many other genes that function with it. Now Novartis can improve their drug by targeting these genes in addition to the one they already have. It's a combinatorial way of fighting the worms. They did not know, for instance, what does this thing normally do? So you're taking a, a drug from outside and then putting it on a worm that the man made, but what does it normally do? What is it required for? And this is a question that I'm still addressing in a drug concern lab, because now that we now know that, okay, we have this molecule, and now you can show that, oh, it's actually responding, it's there to respond to this chemical called berine. But if you put too much of it, it kills the worm. So you have to be very careful about how much of it you have around that kind of idea. Here. However, the point is to kill the worm, yes? Yes, the point is to kill the worm. And they have to understand that most drugs that kill worm act the same way. They just flood. They, they flood the system and that they also have tendency to just go for open things that are normally present in the worm. So it's never, they, they find a specific pathway and then they target that pathway. So that's fascinating. And how excited are you about this discovery and about what it means for your career and even possibly for a cure for something that's been affecting people and animals and you say plants for uh, the entire existence of life? I'm very excited. As I tell at the beginning, I tell the story of uh, God sending the worm to punish Jonah. And I, I, I like to think that burying and this whole story is basically the worm that God sent me to maybe teach me a lesson. Because when you're a scientist, you think that you want to solve big questions, right? How does the brain work and how things. And then one day you find out that, you know, what you're working for is actually an issue that deals with parasitic nematode. At first, you refuse, right? You want it to be a very big story. You want it to be about the brain, about something sophisticated. But then the facts are the facts. I mean, I left home about almost 20 years ago now to come and study in the United States, right? Hoping to be, I don't know, something much bigger, right? Um, big scientist. But I'm happy, I always tell people, since I, my doctorate is in pharmacology, I always I used to tell my grandfather, no, I'm trying to understand how drug works. But, you know, and everybody who's a scientist who knows how this thing, you know, work is like you, you do a lot, but you don't really get that close to a drug or how a drug works. But I think that with this research, these genetics, I can actually say, oh, I did actually do that, right? Because now we can figure out a better way uh, through 
new target, uh, both the, the SNF regime that I have, Novoris didn't have them, for instance. So now they can make drug that targets SNF3. And the receptor, then you have two things, right? You can block the transporter, you flood the system naturally, and then you can have the, the monopantal drug that allow the, 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 the lock to be easily open. And together, if you make such a drug, then you can kill the worm much faster. And then you're probably going to prevent a resistance maybe much faster. Because right now, just having one gene, it's easy to mutate. And so, and then go back to the same old issue of resistance. But by having all of these over genes, and most of which I have not talked about of cauterized, because I have many genes mutation, then then we, we know that you have a lot more that the drug companies or whoever is interested in finding the drug can work with to make better drugs. So you mentioned you spoke with your aunt in Gabon when you made this discovery and. Um, was there a reaction by them to what this could mean in the village? No, no. I mean, it was more of everybody reminiscing on when they were children and then be infected because most of the time you just get infected as kids. Not never. It's kind of very rare to have adult, at least from my personal experience, to have adult doing this. So it was mostly reminiscent, right? People just say, oh yeah, I remember being infected by wounds. And then you just, you just laugh about it. So it's not, they don't talk about, oh yeah, this is, I mean, conversation don't go to that level of daydreaming about major discoveries. And it's just, oh yeah, that's nice, yeah. Like you said, nobody has a good memory of, <laughs> of politic nematodes. So you just laugh at it and then looking back kind of deal. Oh, with a little more research, maybe you'll get rid of that, those memories altogether <laughs> in the next generation. Eh? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Turns out, the University of Utah is the place to study the molecule betaine. Dr. Peden discusses the U of U scientists who helped form the foundation that led to this discovery. Actually, before I joined the Jorgensen Laboratory in 2005, um, there were two groups at the University of Utah who were studying a betaine um, in one form or the other. Uh, one uh, person who since left the university was a Professor Mary uh, Lucero. She showed that betaine does affect neurons, the behavior of the neuron, that they would stimulate neurons and generate a current. So if you put it on a neuron, they will generate a current in squid neurons. And um, Steve H. White, who is in the toxicology and pharmacology department, and also run the NIH anticonvulsant drug unit, they look for drugs that can prevent epileptic seizures. And they found out that one of the chemicals that they found they had could would target the betaine GABA transporter, and that that could function as an, an epileptic drugs. But they still have to figure out exactly how this molecule functions. So you, at least that what those things that made me push my study further because I knew that you already have two groups here at the University of Utah who looked at this molecule. So there must be something big about it. And so it seems like, well, if you want to talk about very signaling, this is indeed the place. What is your personal relationship to worms? Do you ever have a relationship with a worm? Can you have a relationship with a worm when you're working with worms? Um, I know you once said you 
frightened by worms even. Um, yes, I am very afraid. I'm very afraid of worms. Actually, growing up, uh, my grandmother always called me a yama which means the idiot, because every time I saw a worm, I screamed. And for her, she never really understood why somebody who grew up in the forest would be afraid of any insect or worm, uh, as, as I was. And uh, the reason is that once uh, you've been infected with parasitic nematode, you're afraid of what that is. But then, uh, when I was in graduate school, I uh, we met these, this lady who was doing very cool science, very cool genetics, and, uh, and she was using a lot of worm as a model organism. Uh, to, to really understand, uh, address big question, and I found that that was very, very cool, and I, and I really wanted to do that, be able to do genetics in the womb. So after I got my doctoral degree in molecular pharmacology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I decided to move, to switch and, and work uh, to do genetics in the womb, and uh, of course, along the line, uh, overcome my fear, and I've come a long way. Uh, I still wear gloves in the garden so that I don't accidentally touch a worm, uh, but those are not parasitic worm, and they don't really belong to the same species as parasitic worm, but it's a worm is a worm. And now, since I made the discovery, figure out a way how uh, some of these nematocytes work, I have more respect for the worm. I will actually take the time to stop and then rescue a worm from a flood, mostly in the spring when it's raining and stuff. I'm still afraid of them. I should get a stick to move them out of the water. I'm not touching them with my hand. But that's kind of my love and hate relationship with the worm outside of science. Why is a worm such a good subject to try to understand the human brain? You know, I think it is the people say that Nietzsche said, you may have evolved from warm to man, but much within you is still warm. And, and that is true because a lot of the genes that are found in worms are also found in humans, right? But they probably do the same thing. Maybe you have little changes then and there, but all of these genes are there. And they might be doing, maybe being in the wrong place. Like I, I explained that the lady that I'd met who was doing cool science with the worm, she was actually um, studying one behavior, male mating behavior in the worm, in C. elegans, which is the worm that we use as a model system. But then it turned out that the genes she was studying in the worm were actually involved when they mutated, they caused kidney disease in human. That goes to tell you that, yes, you can use a worm uh, for, uh, to understand the nervous system. And as I will be saying all along this interview, and that you should never forget that sometime God used a worm. So there's no, nothing too little that cannot be used to understand man. Thank you, uh, Dr. Feden, very much. We look forward to following Dr. Ode Heaton's work and congratulate her on revealing our secret weapon against the attack of the parasitic nematode. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Susie Montgomery for conducting this interview. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the tumultuous love affair between former Utah Senator Arthur Brown and his mistress, Anne Bradley. 
first this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. In the 21st century, we consider political scandals and courtroom drama to be characteristic of modern times. But 100 years ago, things weren't all that different. In December 1906, Utah woman Anne Bradley sat alone in a Washington, D.C. jail cell. Her crime? The fatal shooting of her long-term lover, former Utah Senator Arthur Brown. Anne Bradley was a prominent young woman active in groups like the Salt Lake City Women's Club and the Utah Women's Press Club. She met Arthur Brown in 1892 through her work with the Utah Republican Party. The two began a lengthy love affair that went public when Brown was elected in 1896 as one of Utah's first two senators after statehood. Anne Bradley had two sons with Arthur Brown and expected him to marry her as soon as he divorced his wife. Bradley had a long wait for a divorce that never came. Then, in 1905, Brown's wife died, leaving him free to marry Bradley. Still, nothing happened. Repeated delays prompted Bradley to follow Arthur Brown to Washington, D.C. in 1906, where she found evidence that Brown was having another affair with Annie Adams, mother of famous Utah actress Maude Adams. Bradley confronted Brown in his hotel room and, in a fit of rage, shot him point-blank. Brown was taken to the hospital, where he later died. Salt Lakers were shocked, but not surprised, by Bradley's crime of passion. At her murder trial, Bradley pleaded emotional insanity and public sympathy swayed in her favor when it was discovered that Brown had written Bradley and their two sons out of his will. Anne Bradley was acquitted in Washington, D.C. and returned to Utah. She opened an antique shop in Salt Lake City that she operated until her death in 1950. On her death certificate, she is listed as a widow, her deceased husband, Arthur Brown. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.